Thanks for listening to our podcast. The following is a ministry of Orchard Bible Church in Centennial, Colorado. Please join us on Sunday mornings. For more details, visit us online at orchardbible.org. Today's scripture reading is from Hebrews chapter 2, verses 5 through 9. This is the word of God. For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere, What is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now, in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not see everything in subjection to him, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might test or taste death for everyone. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for this day that we've got, that we can come here today, as cold as it is, but nonetheless warmed by your presence. And may we today listen to your word as we look to it closely and be moved and changed by it. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, good morning, and I'm welcome to all of you who are here this day. Just a few minutes ago, Jeff Uleman asked me if I was so fearful that nobody would come this morning, and frankly, I was a little bit, because of the temperature, because of the weather. I mean, it's zero degrees, minus five degrees a little bit ago. And it reminds me of a story of a farmer, a farm community out in the middle of Kansas, where there was a snowstorm that set in one Sunday morning, and the young preacher shows up to church with his wife, and there's no one there but... He and his wife and a deacon and his wife. And so the young preacher asked the deacon, well, what should I do this morning? And the deacon says, well, I've got a lot of cows. And even if it snows, I load up my truck and I go out and I feed them. Even if only a couple come up to, to eat. And so the young preacher stood up and he preached and he went at it for 45, 50 minutes. And he delivered everything he could that morning. And then he asked the deacon, well, how was that? And the deacon scratched his chin and said, well, when I go out to feed my cows... I do feed the ones that come, but I don't give them the whole truckload. (laughs) And so this morning I thought, well, I wonder if I should deliver the whole truckload. But enough was here. I think we'll go ahead and do that. But Hebrews chapter 2 that we're in today, and as we just heard read, tells us this epic story of what Jesus is doing, who he is, and what he's now done for us. And it's epic in the sense that we think of a great story in which God is working throughout all of history. Now, you know what an epic is. There's great epics written in history. Uh, Perhaps the greatest epics of ancient world is uh, those of Homer, the Iliad, and the Odyssey. And these are epic poems which take 12 hours to recite, and that's what was done. They recited them. And so even the Odyssey itself is very long, but the Odyssey tells a story that follows after the Iliad. The Iliad is, of course, the, the battle at Troy, the Trojan War. The Odyssey is the story of Odysseus as he's returning from Troy back to his home in Greece, in Ithaca. Now, this trip normally would have taken only about two weeks to make, maybe 10 days. 
But instead, in Homer's Odyssey, it takes 10 years. And this is because Odysseus, on his way back home to Ithaca, finds himself confronted with any number of obstacles. And so he has to deal with the, the god of the ancient ocean, Poseidon. He has to deal with sirens of the deep. And he has to deal with the cyclops and, and many other things that prevent him from getting home timely. But finally, he makes it home. And when he does, it's been 10 long years now, he's concerned about what his household, his kingdom would be like. Now, he's got a wife, Pen uh, Penelope, who's home. And after 10 years have passed, many of the men of the community have now decided they want to be their, her suitor. And so they're now trying to marry Penelope and take over Odysseus' kingdom. And so he comes now to see what's going on, but he doesn't come as Odysseus, the great warrior, but instead dressed as a beggar. And when Odysseus shows up as a beggar, he shows up to see what's going on. Now, Penelope, his wife, had decided at some point it's time to marry. Now, she'd been delaying this by saying to all of these suitors, I'm going to knit this, this uh, garment, and as soon as I'm done, then we'll get married. Well, I'll marry one of you. And what she did every day, she, she would uh, uh, do the sewing, and then every night she would undo the stitches and start over again. So she never got it done after 10 years. So finally, Odysseus shows up as a beggar, and she decides, let's figure this out. And so she says to all of the suitors, to whichever one of you can string the bow of Odysseus and fire an arrow through ten axe heads, to that man I will marry. And of course, none of them could do that until this beggar shows up, and he strings that bow, and he pulls it back, and he shoots an arrow through all ten axe heads and reveals himself as Odysseus. And the story there is an epic story that has been common throughout human history. When Odysseus the king returns, he comes back to do what no other person could do. Just as we see Jesus now coming to earth to do what we could not do for ourselves. And he strings that bow, and he shoots that arrow, and he passes the test. The book of Hebrews is a story that shows us how Jesus now passes the test that God had initially set out for us. Now, we've been a few weeks now in Hebrews. In chapter 1, of course, we worked through a number of verses which talked about Jesus being better than the angels. And you might wonder, why is it so important to make this point repeatedly? And what the book of Hebrews is doing here is to tell us that Jesus is better than the angels because, to the Jewish way of thinking, the angels were great. They were the ones upon whom God had delivered the law to Moses as Deuteronomy 33 says. And so they had great admiration for the angels and what God is doing for them through the angels. But Jesus is now, is, uh, verse one, chapter 1, verse 1 and 2 says, the one through whom God's word has now come. And so the writer of Hebrews doesn't want us to think that Jesus is simply a great angel. No, he's much more than a great angel. In fact, it says he is the son. He is God's son. He's God's unique son. And so Hebrews chapter 1 is making the point for us that Jesus is God's unique and special son. Very different from the angels. And so as we come through this passage, we see now Jesus is something even more than his unique son. He is the one who stands as our representative, as our head, as a man in his humanity. So let's take a look at the first point. This morning we're going to ask five questions, the first of which is, what was God's plan for humanity? We see this in verses 5 through 8 as they're read. For it was not to the angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. What we're talking about? 
the world to come. Now keep that in mind. You may want to circle that and note that because everything said in the book of Hebrews forward is dealing with the world to come. It's all about what theologians call eschatology. Now that word means simply the last things. But do you realize that really all of theology is built around eschatology? Everything we do here is an anticipation of what God has promised us in the future. And so even as we grow spiritually, we do that in light of who God has made us and what he has promised us in the future. So the world to come is the focus of this passage and all of Hebrews that follows. It was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. And then he says, it's been testified somewhere. Now that doesn't mean that the author doesn't know where. We know exactly where. He knew exactly where. This was simply his way of saying that uh, God's word speaks. I'm not going to credit to any one person. It has been testified somewhere. What is man that you are mindful of him? And the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now this is something of an extended a quote from uh, Psalm chapter 8. And so I'm going to turn over to Psalm chapter 8, and if you can join me there. Psalm chapter 8 is one of the great psalms of the Old Testament. And to those who would have been reading Hebrews, they would have known these words and understood it well. Psalm chapter 8 is a psalm that talks about God's infusion of humanity with greatness. God's plan for humanity as rulers of the world. And so in verse 1, O Lord, our Lord, Yahweh and Adonai, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens, out of the mouths of babes and infants. You have established strength because of your foes, to still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him? And the son of man that you care for him. You have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings or the angels and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen and all the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the sea. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. This eighth psalm is a psalm of David in which David looks up to the magnificence of the heavens, the great cosmos above, and even then he didn't understand what we do today about the expanse of the universe. And he looks at that and says to a God that can create so much, why does he care at all about humans? Why does he care at all about us? So the first point that Psalm 8 is making that Hebrews is relying on is that God does care, that God does value humanity, and that God has given humans the responsibility of exercising dominion over God's creation. Now, David didn't make that up out of whole cloth. Of course, he gets that from Genesis chapter 1. And in Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, let me just add these verses to the thought. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness, and so we're made in God's image. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. 
And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over it. And then he itemizes all of the areas in which we're to have dominion. That was God's original plan for humanity. Psalm 8 looks back to Genesis 1 and says God still has that plan for humanity. God still cares about us as humans. And so he still has that plan. And so the book of Hebrews now ties in Psalm 8, which ties in Genesis 1 and says that is still God's plan for us. And so we see as Hebrews develops this idea that God does have a plan for humanity. It speaks of the world to come. And in this present world, we don't see, as it says, all things subjected to him. Now, the hymns in this passage get confusing. And so commentators are kind of divided different points over at what point does those hymns speak of Jesus? Again, it says, uh, it has been testified somewhere, what is man that you're mindful of him, mindful of man, or the son of man? Now, we see there man and son of man being referenced. And with those two references, we can see something that would pop up in the mind of a, a person. Man refers to humans, but son of man has maybe two references. It often refers to humans like us. It also referred in the Jewish mind to the Messiah that was promised. And we see that in Daniel chapter 7. We see that in Jesus' teaching as the son of man, that this is a reference to the Messiah. And so gradually, Hebrews is taking Psalm 8 and converting it into a psalm about Jesus as the human who is now fulfilling the promises of Psalm 8. And so who is uh, him, mindful of him, the son of man, that you care for him? For you made him for a little while lower than the angels. Now we know from Psalm 8 that that hymn refers to us. We are lower than the angels, lesser beings in that sense. But you have crowned him with glory and honor. Crowned humans, Psalm 8 says, with glory and honor, and putting everything in subjection under his feet, meaning us. Not Jesus yet, but us. And so that's a thought that Psalm 8 has. Now as we come to this psalm, we think about what's really going on here. We have all this talk about angels. The point being made here is that Jesus is the true human being. Jesus now fulfills that role for us that we failed in fulfilling for ourselves because of the fall. And so Genesis 1 and 2 is implicated, but also because of the fall, Genesis 3, where humanity falls out of God's grace because of sin and loses now his position of dominion over God's creation and as ruler over God's creation. And so we see this being developed here. Um, several thoughts being added here. First of all, God always intended his unique son to be greater than the angels. That's the point that, Paul is that Hebrews is making here. God always intended his unique son to be greater than the angels, and he always was. We've talked about that. But we see a second point being developed here, and that is that Jesus has already attained the position that God called us to be in, where we failed to exercise dominion under God's submission over God's creation, as Psalm 8 talks about, Jesus has attained that role. And so in this passage, it's now talking about crowning him, Jesus, with glory and honor because he has attained that position instead of us. And so you might then ask, 
If he's attained it instead of us, what good does that do us? And that's the third point that the writer is making, is that Jesus is now serving as our representative, as the truly human man, the great man, Jesus. He is our representative. Now, in the ancient world, there was, of course, ancient Athens, where democracy was born, and in a small ancient uh, city of Athens, democracy where every individual gets a vote could work. But that didn't work when the town grew very large. And so the democracy of Athens gave way to the Republic of Rome, where a representative was elected that went and did something on your behalf. Jesus, as our representative, is doing something on our behalf. He is the one who has accomplished what we couldn't. Like Odysseus, he has come and met the test that we failed. And so Jesus has attained that which God promised to man, that God called man to be and fulfill. Jesus has attained that and done so on our behalf. And so we see all of this beginning to come together. Now, not long ago, just a few weeks ago, we were in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And because Hebrews 1 has tied in Psalm 110 and Psalm 8 in these passages, it's, I just want to hit 1 Corinthians 15 real quick, beginning in verse 20, because that also does the same thing that Hebrews is doing here. And Hebrews, uh, 1 Corinthians 15 is that passage which speaks of Jesus' resurrection, right? And so we know Jesus' resurrection has great implications for all of us. And Paul writes, But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep or those who have died. The firstfruits. In other words, he's first. That means someone else is following, and that's us. But each in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming or his parousia, those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom of God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. That's Psalm 110 in Hebrews 1. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. And that's Psalm 8. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. The point Paul is making in 1 Corinthians 15 is that the Messianic Psalms, Psalm 110, Psalm 8, all things in subjection under his feet is now being fulfilled in Jesus and Jesus alone and all of those who are in Christ who follow after him because he is the first fruits, we come after him. So we then gain the benefit of what Christ has done for us. And that's a point that he's making here. So we ask the second question. What happens when humanity fell out of God's plan? What happened? And the answer is because of the fall, man failed in his dominion. When we fell out of God's plan, humanity failed in its role to fulfill God's position for us as God's servant exercising dominion over this earth. Instead, we find ourselves exercising dominions on our own behalf. And so what we see happening here is two stories unfolding at the same time in parallel. One is a story of what Christ has done, that Christ has come sinless, he lived his life in humiliation, 
lower than the angels as a human. He suffered and died, but was resurrected and now exalted. And in his exalted position, he is both Messiah and Lord. And so as Messiah and Lord, he fulfills that role that God called Israel to, to be the light of the world. He has now done that, and he's now Lord of the world. And so that's what Christ has done. That's the first story that God, through Christ, has regained dominion over this world, this present world. The world to come is the world we're in now. This side of the cross, this is the world to come. Inaugurated at Christ's coming, eventually completed, it is returned. Christ has done that. That's the first story being told. Christ has reclaimed that dominion. The second story being told at the same time is humanity's attempt to grasp and regain that dominion on our behalf for our own selfish reasons. And so humanity, in rebelling against God, has said, we won't exercise dominion and live this life, live in this world in subjection to God, but we will instead attempt to subject God's world to ourselves for our benefit, for our own needs, for our power and our pleasure. And that's why so many people today live for themselves only. They're not living their lives in submission to God, but instead living their lives only for their own benefit. So these two stories are being told at the same time. And your life and my life are telling one of those two stories every day. Either we are living our life in submission to God, growing spiritually, submitting all aspects of our life to Him for His benefit, or we're living our life for our own benefit, attempting to exercise dominion and power and control for our own power, for our own pleasure, for our own benefit. And so our lives are telling one of those two stories. And what we're called to do is to make sure that we're living our life in light of what God wants us to do and what God wants us to be. And so in this passage, because of the fall, we have failed in our dominion. When we look at uh, this passage in Hebrews, he goes on in verse 10 and, and following, and he talks about the problem of death and the fear of death in verses 14. Uh, therefore, uh, since therefore children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same thing, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who fear death were subject to lifelong slavery. This is beginning to move, as we'll see in coming weeks, into what God has done through Christ, and that's to defeat death. And so death is our mortal enemy. In a very real sense, of course. Now, thinking about death. Death is not easy to think about. In fact, there's a lot of things that Sigmund Freud got wrong. But one thing he did talk about was, first, the way that humans deal with death. Our ambivalent attitude towards it. First of all, Freud mentioned and notes that we have a, a death wish. Because all humans can recognize in themselves their own failures. They can recognize in themselves their own guilt and their shame. And because of that, there's a death wish. And in this life, in this world, as we struggle to deal through it and get through it, we, we often feel like death is our only answer, that that's the only way out. And so there is that element within people that, that wants a way out. But the problem and the conflict is, is because there's not just this death wish, but there's also a fear of death. How do we face death? How do we confront death? 
We don't just we don't talk about it. Now in the ancient world, of course, death was much more present. When a person died, they died in your home. That still happens today, but often it's in a hospital, it's removed from us, and we don't see the terrible effects of disease like that up front as often. But death was very present. And so Freud notes this this ambivalence to death. We have a death wish at the same time we fear death. But you think about why. And the reason is because of what it means. Does death mean the end of us? Is there nothing else after death? The great Russian uh, writer Leo Tolstoy wrote War and Peace wrote about this in his book called A Confession. And there he talked about that in his life when he was young, he was vigorous, he was intoxicated by life. He could live life to the fullest, but as he got older and about age 50, he began to realize that death was not that far away. And he began to wonder, if there is no God, if there is nothing after this, then what's the point of it all? What does it mean? What does it matter? He asked himself the question, if there is no life after death or no meaning in life after death, if there is nothing, then is there anything in my life that will have any meaning that death won't annihilate? When you die, is it all done? And with that thought, Tolstoy and others, Camus and many others like that, have begun to ask the question, is there anything in this life? And the answer for an atheist is, no, there is nothing. There's no meaning after you die, therefore there's no meaning in your life today except whatever meaning you think you can give it. Uh, John Lennox, the great uh, uh, apologist and, and mathematician at Oxford, debated Peter Atkins not long ago and talked about this. And Peter Atkins, the atheist, a great uh, physical uh, scientist, there is nothing, he says. Death means it, that's the end of it. There is nothing that we have after this life. And so that's what Tolstoy is struggling with. Is there nothing? And the answer the Bible gives us is that there is. There is something more. There is something we can look after. And so the scriptures tell us that. Uh, death is not the end of it. There's a point of Christian theology which has bearing at this point. Francis Schaeffer, the great Christian theologian and pastor and writer, talks about man being created in God's image that we are made in God's image, all of us. And even through the fall, we don't lose that image bearing that we had. And so Schaefer says that all of us, all humanity has value. That's what the Bible teaches. Everyone has value. And for that reason, we as believers reach out in love to our neighbor. We reach out to share the gospel with others. Even those who appear in this life to be our enemies... Schaefer says, it's our obligation to love them, to reach out to them, to do that. That's what our mission is. Being made in God's image means we're different, that we reflect who God is. And that changes the way we live and how we do things, because now in this life, we find ourselves able to be what God wants us to be. Now, for the Christian, we're made in God's image, which gives us value. To the atheist... What are we? We become nothing more than a, a random collocation of metabolizing molecules built around a 33-foot alimentary canal. We eat, we excrete, and we die. And that's all there is to the atheist. But to the believer, we're made in God's image and have value. And so God has now called us as believers to this position in Christ to follow Christ into the future that God has promised us. 
So we see what we're, uh, this passage is talking about. When humanity fell out of God's plan, we lost a dominion. In verse 9, why did God become a man in Jesus? Verse 9. Why did God become a man in Jesus? But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. Jesus became a man, or God became a man in Jesus, so that he could do it, we couldn't. The first Adam failed. So we needed a second Adam. We needed someone to fill that role, and Jesus does that. He is the very embodiment of perfect humanity. In uh, Revelation chapter 5, Revelation chapter 5 and verses 1 to 4, the book of Revelation ties us together as well. John writes, Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll, written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And when that scroll is opened, it says, as it continues in verse 9, And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seal. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed a people for God, from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. The book of Revelation in Revelation 5 is telling us that Jesus is the one who was worthy to open the scroll, that Jesus was the one who conquered. And when that scroll is opened, what is revealed are those multitudes of people throughout history that are believers that, are con that have conquered with Christ. That's the future. And what Revelation says is we shall reign with him on the earth. You see, that again is God's promise of the future. That is the new heavens and new earth that Revelation is talking about. That's our future. That's what Hebrews 2 is talking about here. That's our promise. And so through all of this, we see there's a great promise we have. And it's done, as of course, as it says, by his grace. It's done by his grace. We think of what God's grace means. It's, it means that we could not be one of those conquerors had it not been because of God's grace to us and him reaching out to bring us into his kingdom. Now, of course, it happens all through Christ's resurrection. And that's the point in 1 Corinthians 15 that we looked at. That's the point here again, that after his suffering and death, there is his resurrection. And Christ's resurrection becomes both a model and a means for our future. It's a model because Christ's resurrection is not only for his benefit, but it's also a model for what our future life is. In our death, after our death, there's a new life we're promised, a new resurrected life. Christ's resurrection is the first fruits we're told. We see that. Our resurrection follows after that. This morning we heard Alan Kimber's father passed away at age 99. I know his last years were difficult, they were hard, they were with great suffering and pain. His present status is not 
clearly spoken of in Scripture. He's with Jesus, and we know only that. But we know more about what the Bible talks about in Revelation is that in this coming world, there's a resurrection. And so Alan Kimber's father and those loved ones you have lost as believers will also be resurrected and enjoy this new heaven and new earth on this earth as God recreates it. Not long ago, I preached a, a sermon, a funeral, and I went to great length to explain the resurrection means that in the future, we will be raised into a new life on this earth in a new heavens and a new earth. And that that idea we have that comes from Platonic philosophy, that there's a separate spiritual world out there, separate from us, and naturally we go and we live in, in heaven playing harps in some ethereal, immaterial world. That's not biblical at all. And I explained that in the sermon, and soon after I finished, another person came up to give another part of the eulogy, and again, turned right back to that same theme, talking about our future life in heaven together. The future life is not in some immaterial world out there. It's instead in this heaven and new earth that God creates on this earth. God renews this world for our benefit. That's what it's all about. And so we see that being spoken of. Uh, John Polkinghorne, a British uh, scientist, philosopher of science and theologian, uses this illustration, I think works very well. He says, when you become a believer, God downloads new software onto your old hardware. You think differently now. As a believer, there's a new heart in your life. You're given a new way of thinking, but it's still being downloaded on your old hardware. What God is promising in the future after the resurrection is that you then get new hardware upon which to run that new software. And that's what the resurrection is about, and that's what it means for us as well. We will one day reign with Christ on this earth with new hardware running new software, U 2.0. That's what the scriptures are telling us all about. And so we look forward to that. Again, as we uh, look at the fourth point, what does Jesus' life and death mean for us? It means one other thing. And that is, of course, that uh, the, the uh, uh, importance of us living under the Lordship of Christ. We were designed to live under the Lordship of God in all parts of our life. That's how God intended it with Adam in the garden. Because of the fall, man rejected that Lordship. But as believers now, it's our responsibility to resubmit to Christ's Lordship in our life. Francis Schaeffer talks about this at great length as well. That in submitting to our Lordship, we do so because... Uh, Christ's Lordship, we do so because that's what he's called us to do. That's what he's called us to be. And that means all parts of our life now fall under that. And so he contrasts that thinking, the point he wants to make, with what was 16th century pietism, 17th century pietism. Now the pietists said that this material world is bad. This material world is evil. And what's good is the immaterial. And so they look forward to a heaven in the distant land, a heaven where God is, and rejected all things of this world. And so they withdrew from society. They withdrew from the arts, from politics, from economics, from all of the dealings of this life. They pulled away from it because all of that was corrupting, they thought. Now, if you think about what God has promised to us and called us to be in Genesis 1, Psalm 8, Hebrews 2, Revelation 5, 1 Corinthians 15, all of that, you realize now the lordship of Christ means that 
in every part of our life, we have to bring it under the umbrella of Christ as Lord. And that means then that we do engage in this world, in this life, in the arts. We do that because God has called us to be artistic and to create because God's a creator. We do that in psychology, in sociology, in our dealings with other people. We do that because God has called us to be relational with other people. We do that in economics and politics because God has called us to bring all aspects of our life, every part of it under his control, under his authority. So we don't withdraw from things. And the problem that Christians had many decades ago was we thought we should do that. And so we withdrew from society and we created our own publishing houses so we could write books to, to give to each other. And rather than writing and reading and engaging in the world, we write only books to each other. And what Paul is calling us and Hebrews is calling us to be is to be fully engaged in this life, in this world, in every conceivable way, bringing everything under the lordship of Christ. And that's the point of this, that uh, God has called us to be that. The fifth question, what is God's plan for the world to come? What is God's plan for the world to come? And verse 5 again it says, For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come. The world to come is now formally under the control of Jesus. And it's our position and place now to recognize that and to engage in our life in recognition of that and to participate in our life with each other here, submitting all things to his lordship, knowing that he is presently lord of the universe, presently the king, presently in control. All of that is for our future benefit. In the passage we'll see next week, it'll speak of Christ as the founder of our salvation. The word there, archegos, means the, 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 the one who goes out ahead, the champion. He's the one who's fighting the battle for us and has won that victory. And we'll see that in coming weeks. That's the whole point being made here in Hebrews 2. And this passage we've seen today sets a theme for all of Hebrews. It sets our future on course. That's what it's all about. Now, you might think and wonder, what difference does anything I do today make? That's a question that Tolstoy asked himself. Does anything make a difference? Does anything I do survive my death? Or is it all annihilated? When I'm gone, the people who knew me, when they're gone, were simply forgotten. And the point that we see today is that it does make a difference. Now imagine an ancient uh, medieval cathedral being built. You've seen those cathedrals like Notre Dame and so many of those cathedrals built during the 12, 1300s. Magnificently large buildings. And so you had there first a grand architect. And that architect designed the building and laid it out. And when they figured out the flying buttress, they were able to raise the walls with windows in them and build. But they weren't, all the workers on site weren't master architects. But so they would delegate. And to someone down below, there would be a stone cutter. And he would be told, here's the pattern. Cut these stones into this pattern and do this a hundred times. And that stone cutter would chisel away and do this, not knowing what's going to happen with it, not knowing what its place will be. But he's told, chisel that stone and follow this pattern and do that. But then after... The masons come and they raise those stones and they build those walls and the architecture is now finished. That stone cutter can look up into that great cathedral and look up and say, that's my stone. That's what I chiseled. 
That's what I cut. That's my part of this great edifice. And all the little things we do in our life today is the same way. We may not know what place they have in God's future kingdom, but everything we do this day, in this life, in this world, is contributing one more small part into the kingdom that God has promised in the world to come. When Christ returns, he comes as king and sets up his kingdom. Our work today will make that difference. And so the point of Hebrews here is that it does matter what we do. It does matter how we live. It does matter how we think and how we work and how we engage with one another. That we reach out and love to one another. That we think about our life in his submission. Our submission to him. That's the point of Hebrews 2. And so as we dismiss this morning, I would ask you simply to think about your role in God's kingdom. And how you might contribute every day incrementally to that role. Will you stand with me as we close? Our Father, we thank you for this day where we can come and consider this passage you've given to us. And as we think over your great plan, we see that your great plan is to renew this world, this life, this new heavens and new earth. And provide for us a place where we too may reign with you in the future. That that is the heaven that we speak about. That that's a promise that you've made to us. And so, Lord, give us the strength and the wisdom and the knowledge and the ability to each day do our part to contribute to your kingdom. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.